Hello everyone and welcome back to NATO's Road to Madrid, the CSIS podcast where we're breaking down the main issues on NATO's agenda ahead of its summit in Madrid this June. I'm Pierre Morcos and I'm a visiting fellow with the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at CSIS. Hello and I'm Louis Simon. I'm the Argaris Family Foundation fellow with the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program. So uh, this Monday, Pierre and I sat down with Professor Mishito Suruoka of Keio University in Tokyo, uh, Japan. Uh, Mishito is one of the foremost experts on NATO in Asia. And we got, we got to talk to him about everything from Japan's critical role in the international response uh, to Russia's illegal invasion of uh, Ukraine to the viability of a nation, NATO. Along the way, we also discussed how China views the conflict in Ukraine how NATO's Indo-Pacific partners view the potential role of the alliance in their region, and also the importance of the European engagement in the Indo-Pacific more broadly. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episodes of NATO's Route to Madrid. Luis and I have the pleasure to host today Professor Michito Tsuruoka from the Keio University in Japan, a well-known expert on European security and, and, and defense. And we're here today with Professor Tsuroka to discuss quite a fascinating dynamic, which is the growing cooperation between NATO and its Indo-Pacific partners, namely Japan, South Korea, Australia, and uh, New Zealand. And we're lucky to have you, Professor Tsuroka, to give us a Japanese perspective uh, on this new uh, dynamic. So, so, so let's start with the most recent development, which is the intense coordination between Japan on one hand and EU and NATO countries on the other hand to push back against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It has been quite remarkable to see that Tokyo has been fully aligned with its US and European partners on all fronts uh, during that crisis. And we would be interested to better understand the rationale behind Uh, Japan's full engagement uh, in this crisis. Okay, great. The, to be quite frank, the, the Tokyo's and the Kishida government's response to the war in Ukraine has been quite, uh, quite surprising and surprisingly firm and surprisingly fully aligned with other G7 partners. So the, there are various reasons for that. And the one, I think the most important reason behind that is the fact that the sheer scale of what Russia is doing in Ukraine is very much beyond our normal sort of a imagination and uh, that shocks many Japanese. So the, and the Prime Minister Kishida has been saying that uh, the Russia's action is now shaking the very foundation of the rules-based international order. And also the, the Prime Minister Kishida is emphasizing that uh, we should not let this a bad precedent for, 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 for the Asia Pacific. So that if we allow this in the European theater, so, so this argument goes that uh, the, the, this similar thing could, could happen in Asia Pacific, which is something that uh, Tokyo really wants to prevent. So that, that is, I think, a, a very important international context of this. But at the same time, the domestic uh, and the story of this is also there because the, the, there is a huge contrast between what Prime Minister Abe was trying to do vis-a-vis -vis Russia and what now Prime Minister Kishida is trying to do. So the, in domestic political terms, this is a sort of a, what Kishida is now doing is a sort of a antithesis of what uh, the Abe 
well, was, was doing when he was in power. Thank you. And could you elaborate more on what Japan has done uh, concretely to support Ukraine and to, to push back against Russia during that crisis? And first and foremost, economic sanctions. So the, and the, the content of economic sanctions are largely in line with what other G7 partners are doing. So including uh, the, the, the import ban call, and uh, now we're in the process of, of doing a, a oil embargo as well. So the, and also the financial sanctions and the sanctions against the Russian Central Bank and the individual sanctions, asset freeze and other things, uh, including Mr. Putin himself and, uh, and those who are uh, close to the, to, to the government as well. And also the assistance and various assistance to, to Ukraine is, is very much a, the, the important pillar of what Japan is doing. So the, compared to what uh, NATO countries are doing, like uh, sending uh, tanks and other weapons, uh, what Japan is doing is, uh, is, is almost nothing. But still, the, by Japanese domestic standard, this was a very new thing. So, so the Kishida government decided uh, to, to, to send uh, the bulletproof vest and the other uh, uh, things uh, from the, 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 the depot of the self-defense forces. And that was really a first ever uh, decision for the government to send defense equipment to, 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 to other countries. So, so the, yes, the, in domestic political terms, uh, yes, that was very uh, new, but uh, maybe uh, by international standard may not be quite, quite, quite remarkable, but still, the, the, the assistance to refugees, uh, the, the Ukrainian refugees in, in various countries, particularly in the neighboring countries, uh, and particularly Moldova, I think it's, it's also something that uh, Japan is very much uh, has been focusing on. Mm, very interesting. Um, you mentioned that uh, the war in Ukraine was uh, from a Japanese perspective, a shock for the rules-based international order. Uh, could you expand on that? And why for Tokyo is there such a strong link between the European theater and the Asian theater? Yes, the, the notion of a change of status quo by force or coercion. So this is something that uh, the Tokyo has been very much focusing on for many years now. What Russia is doing now is a sort of extreme case of change of status quo by force. And uh, we need to prevent that from happening in Asia. So the, of course, the, the, the linkage between Russia's actions and possible Chinese actions or North Korean actions, the, the linkage is very much complicated. So the, there's no linear uh, sort of a, the, the connection between the two regions. But still, one of the things that uh, we are very much looking at is what sort of lessons Beijing is learning and drawing from what's taking place in Ukraine. There are actually two, two elements here. And uh, one is that uh, the, the fact that uh, Russian forces are struggling to achieve what you wanted to achieve is a sort of a surprising bad news for Beijing. So the Beijing expected a quick win for Russia. And, uh, and of course for Beijing, what they have in their mind is that uh, the, what would happen if they decide to try to integrate Taiwan by force. 
So the, from that perspective, the, the, it's, it's quite clear that uh, Chinese are really interested in how things are going and why Russian forces are facing difficulties. So, the, so this is a, from a Japanese perspective, th this is really a good news that uh, the, the, the war in Ukraine has demonstrated how difficult it is to, to do sort of a, a, a effective, efficient invasion into, into a, a other people's territory. And the second sort of lesson the, the Beijing or, or the people in China are very much looking at uh, is the, the international reaction to, to Russia's uh, invasion. Because uh, the Russia sort of expected a sort of an internal uh, difficulties in the West and between the US and Europe or even within the European Union. But uh, what we have seen, at least for the moment, is a, a unprecedented level of unity within the EU and also the, between Europe and the United States and also within the G7, including Japan. This sort of a international unity is a sort of nightmare for the Chinese uh, thinking and Chinese contingency planning regarding Taiwan. So this is sort of a, another convenient good uh, uh, lesson for the West and for the G7 countries. What we have to keep in, in our mind is that uh, the, the, it is highly likely that China will learn lessons, which means that uh, the, the China will revise the contingency planning vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, and uh, they will they, they try to make their economy more resilient against inter possible international sanctions. At the end of the day, after five years, 10 years, I don't know, but uh, I'm, I'm very much concerned that uh, the, the Chinese, uh, China will be in a sort of a better and stronger position vis-a-vis uh, uh, Taiwan uh, after, after they have learned lessons from Russia's failure. Thank you so much. Uh, let me turn to, to Luis. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let me just follow up on, on Pierre's line of questioning because one, one interesting development, and try to sort of broaden the subject a little bit, because one, one, one interesting development of, over the past few months uh, has been actually Japan's uh, increasing participation in NATO meetings, uh, particularly following the invasion of Ukraine. Prime Minister Kishida is also expected to uh, take part in, in, in NATO summit in Madrid uh, next June. So uh, as NATO uh, sort of moves forward with its uh, future strategic concept, there seems to be a clear desire to deepen its partnership with Japan, but also with other partners in the Asia Pacific or in the Pacific, uh, such as Australia, New Zealand, or the Republic of Korea. So how, how would you assess Japan's recent engagements with NATO? What, what have been the main areas of cooperation? But, but also, what, what are Tokyo's expectations vis-a-vis -vis, uh, its partnership with NATO going forward? Yeah, great. The, in the first place, the fact that uh, Foreign Minister Hayashi attended a Foreign Minister's meeting at NATO and, uh, and also the Prime Minister Kishida is, is believed to be attending a NATO summit in Madrid. Uh, that's a new development. Of course, when NATO was uh, doing an ISAF operation in, in Afghanistan, the Japan at that time uh, was a regular sort of a guest for, for meetings on Afghanistan. So Japanese attending various NATO meetings may not be quite new, but, uh, but this time the sort of uh, intensity 
of uh, dialogue and interaction between NATO and Japan, I think is unprecedented. That, that was very much uh, evidenced by the fact that the G7 summit physically took place at NATO headquarters in Brussels. But uh, that was not quite a surprising because the Japan is the only non-NATO country within the, the G7. So the, for Japan, being more aligned with other G7 partners, by default or by coincidence or whatever, is also about uh, Japan moving closer to NATO. So the, whenever we, in the context of G7, we, we, we talk about security and defense uh, issues, then it's very much a, 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 a about uh, the, the NATO's weight is, is always there within G7 because of the fact that uh, the, the other than Japan or the G7 countries are part of NATO. As for more specific areas uh, that uh, Japan is uh, more interested in, I think the in, functional, in, in terms of functional cooperation, the cyber and the maritime security are the two, I think, examples that uh, the Tokyo has always been uh, showing interest. Uh, and cyber security, I, I, I guess, is, a, is, is really a... The, one of the most important areas, uh, because the, when it comes to the military-related and security sector-related uh, cyber things, the, the Japan is uh, not quite advanced, I'm afraid. But uh, so, so there are the, the, there is a huge uh, level of interest in Japan in terms of knowing what NATO is doing, and uh, and also in terms of uh, countering uh, uh, cyber uh, threats and cyber attacks. Uh, so so the, that, that's why the Japan has been uh, a, a, a participating in various uh, NATO cyber exercises uh, in, in, in recent years. And maritime security, obviously, is, a, is an area and uh, we are interested in. But uh, in, in the context of maritime security, I, I think one of the biggest challenges is that uh, the, despite the fact that uh, Japan and NATO uh, have been doing various, say, low-level, I should say, friendship type of exercises uh, for, for, for some time already, but uh, I think now it's time for us to think more about more serious, more vigorous uh, joint exercises involving Japanese uh, maritime self-defense forces and, uh, and, and Navy uh, ships uh, from, from NATO countries. Thank you, and uh, it's a good segue to to my next question about um, NATO's role and relevance in the Indo-Pacific region itself. Could you elaborate more on what could be the added value of an increased uh, engagement of NATO in that uh, region? Yeah, for Japan, NATO is a great venue for us to discuss seriously security hardcore security issues. And also it's a venue which allows Japan to reach out to various NATO countries. Because in bilateral context, yes, of course, we always talk to the UK, France, Germany, of course, the US, but uh, the, for other countries, the, we may not be always uh, able to reach out. So the NATO, is a venue where we can see various other countries, so society countries, uh, the, the assembling, and that, that's a huge, huge advantage. And, uh, and also the, compared to the EU, for example, the NATO's advantage is, is the fact that, uh, it stems from the fact that uh, the NATO is a military alliance. 
where countries discuss and act together. And that includes high-end military issues. Because the, with the, we often talk about what we call new security challenges uh, or the soft security challenges. But uh, what the, the war in Ukraine has demonstrated is that uh, we still very much face old type, hardcore security problems and security military problems, including very high-end challenges. For Japan, yes, of course, in bilateral terms as well, with, with the UK and France in Europe, uh, we, we, we talk a lot about such uh, high-end uh, issues as well. But uh, the NATO, I, I guess, it, I believe is a, is a venue where we, we can have a serious uh, discussion and a substantive cooperation on high-end issues like how we could counter uh, China's and Russia's A2AD and anti-access area denial capability, or how we could think of uh, addressing cruise missile threat. Because uh, in the context of missile defense, we have been very much focusing on ballistic missile defense. And, but now the, we know that uh, the, the Russians and Chinese and some others maybe as well are have a very advanced uh, cruise missiles and uh, the addressing cruise missile threat is a sort of a new challenge uh, for, 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 for the whole missile defense business. So the, how, how we, we could uh, make advance uh, in those areas as well. So, so the, there are, and, and also the, the post INF treaty challenges and what sort of a ground-based missiles uh, we, 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 could, uh, you know, we could think of and how we could put those new missiles in the context of our the deterrence and de uh, defense posture and uh, the appropriate mix uh, in NATO's language and how, how we could locate uh, the new capabilities in the context of uh, the, the appropriate mix of deterrence and defense. And so, so those issues are ju just an example of what Japan and NATO could discuss more. So the, yes, the soft are uh, easier on part of a, a security issues. Yes, that, that's okay. But uh, I think uh, NATO, I, I think is a, is a place where we could talk more serious and uh, high-end issues as well. Very interesting. There is also in, in the Indo-Pacific quite a, a rich web of bilateral, multilateral corporations with the Quad, AUKUS, the engagement of the EU, France, the UK, as you mentioned. How do we make sure that there is no competition or uh, conflicts between these different formats? What is your view on how to better ensure the, the cohesion of these different initiatives, uh, including uh, NATO's growing uh, engagement in the region? Of course, in consensual terms, yes, the how we could uh, do, uh, how we could ensure deconfliction. Uh, between various frameworks, including NATO. Yes, that's a, that's a bit of a problem, but uh, still the reality is that uh, the, it's still a sort of early phase for Europeans to do serious security engagement in the region, in the Indo-Pacific region. Now the situation is that uh, the, there needs to be more European engagement. As long as that's the case, then the problem, the, the, the most pressing issue is not deconfliction, but uh, how we could encourage more European engagement in the region. I think that that is still the sort of a main, main challenge. And particularly, and this challenge is getting bigger in, in, because of the, the war in Ukraine. So the, 
the UK, France, and Germany, and other countries, yes, they may be increasing defense budget, for example, as in the case of Germany, but uh, they will have to focus in the coming at least months or perhaps years, uh, they will have to, to, to pay more attention to intra-European things, particularly Ukraine and Russia. So the, the people in the Indo-Pacific region are wondering how sustainable European engagement in the Indo-Pacific region is or will be. Yeah, so, so, so in that context, the, yes, the deconfliction may be, may be a, a problem, but uh, what we, we, we need to focus now is how, how we could encourage the sort of a continuation of European engagement in the Indo-Pacific region. Thank you. I will have a last question before turning to Luis. We would also be interested in the potential differences between the Indo-Pacific nations uh, themselves uh, regarding NATO. As I mentioned, the formal partners currently are Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. Is there any daylight between these four countries regarding NATO's growing engagement with, with them? And there is a, a new player, which is India, uh, and, and uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg uh, mentioned a few months ago that India might be eventually a, a partner, formal partner to, to NATO. Uh, what is your view also on, on that uh, prospect? Yeah, you're quite right that uh, there are uh, various differences uh, between four countries, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Korea, uh, when it comes to their re respective relations with NATO. And uh, the, my impression, my understanding is that, uh, yes, Japan is very much focusing on sort of a institutional uh, sort of relations with, with, with NATO. So the political dialogue included, and uh, that's what Japan uh, has been very much doing. And whereas Australia, for example, they seem to be more focusing on now AUKUS, so the, the framework with the US and the UK. And it's quite understandable that now their priority is very much about, uh, about uh, making an advance in the context of AUKUS because it's uh, very much in their own national interest. So, the, so rather than thinking about uh, engaging NATO as a whole, the, it makes more sense for Australians to, to, to at, le at least for the moment, to, to, to focus on AUKUS. Uh, at least uh, they, they need to at least uh, get this started. Uh, it, it's very important for them now. But, but at the same time, in, in overall terms, what NATO could bring to the Indo-Pacific region and uh, what we expect so the political engagement and the security engagement, including doing joint exercises and also the raising awareness among Europeans about what takes place in, in the Indo-Pacific region. And uh, these are the things that uh, we, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, South Korea, uh, very much share. And uh, as for India, yeah, and then particularly in the context of the war in Ukraine, the, the India's position is very tricky and particularly for for, for the US and uh, Europe, the India is sort of a neutral and position vis-a-vis -vis Russia is a source of frustration. I, I very much uh, share that. But uh, seeing from India, they believe that uh, the, it's in India's own national interest uh, not to alienate Russia too much because the nightmare for India is uh, the, the Russians and Chinese ganging up against India. 
So they, they need to prevent that from, from, from taking place. So they, we sort of understand in these difficulties, but uh, at the same time, the still, it's, uh, it's very uh, important for Japan and uh, the other like-minded countries to, to, try to try to get India on board. May not be possible for Indians to impose uh, severe sanctions against Russia, but still, the, 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 we need to be able to show that India is a like-minded country because the, the one of the biggest sort of strategic and political rationale uh, uh, behind the quad is that uh, those four countries, uh, the US, Australia, Japan, and India are like-minded countries sharing values. And we have been emphasizing that for, for many years. So the, now the, we, we don't want to, to, to give up that. Excellent. Uh, great. So let's let's now sort of flip the conversation because because NATO is also increasingly concerned by China's rising influence in and around uh, the Euro-Atlantic region. Uh, and this can be witnessed with China's investments in critical infrastructure, but also technologies, uh, as well as its growing defense ties with, with Russia. So what, what would be Japan's advice to NATO uh, as the alliance uh, continues to think about how to cope with the with the China challenge, and, and, and also more specifically, what kind of cooperation do you envisage between NATO and Japan in relation to China, if, if any? Yeah, the, the first sort of a broad advice is that uh, the China is China, particularly Central and Eastern European Europeans, and have been saying that uh, Russia is Russia. So there should be no illusion about Russia. So Russia cannot change, and that's what uh, the Polish and others have been saying. From a Japanese perspective, yes, there we have been living just next to China for many, many, many years. So more than two thousand years, actually. So, so the, we we say that China is China. So the, that means that the, of course, the, we we cooperate with China where possible. So the including uh, various economic uh, relations that uh, that's still very much important for Japan, but at the same time. The, we, we, we should not have uh, any illusion about, about China. So, so, so the nature of the country and the political regime. And uh, so, 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 they, so there should be no illusion. That's a sort of a broad message. And uh, I wouldn't say advice, but uh, it, it, it's just what uh, Japanese believe. As for more concrete uh, uh, cooperation, so the, Again, the, the one of the things that uh, we, we, Japan and NATO, uh, have to talk more about is uh, the, the nuclear forces and also the, the ground-based uh, and the strike capabilities as well. Because the one sort of a inconvenient truth for Europe is that uh, Europe is closer to China's ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Sites, than Washington DC is, or many large part of the US. So, so the Europe is much closer. And uh, so which means that I'm not saying that China intends to attack Europe by, by nuclear weapons. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not alarmist, but uh, the, the objective reality is that, is that uh, the, the Europe the whole part of Europe is well within the range of you know, China's ICBMs. So this is just a reality. And the another reality is that uh, China has been increasing the number of 
ICBMs, or at least what we know is that uh, the China is now trying to build more ICBM silos in various parts of China. So the, yes, the, in NATO context, whenever NATO discusses nuclear deterrence, yes, the, I'm fully, I fully understand why NATO is very much focused on Russia. Yes, of course, in geographical terms and uh, in terms of the number of uh, weapons, the size of the nuclear arsenal, yes, Russia is a bigger threat for, for, for Europe, but, but the China is increasing uh, nuclear arsenal and, uh, and among the five, uh, the NPT recognized nuclear weapon states, China is the only country which is actually increasing the, the number of uh, nuclear weapons. I believe that uh, NATO will have to think more about deterring China. So not just Russia, deterring China, I think is, at least uh, is going to be a real challenge, real task for, 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 for NATO. And also the, the strike gap is, is something that uh, the, in the, the Western Pacific region, including Japan, uh, the, the, we, we are more and more talking about. So the, this is again, the, the post INF treaty, a challenge. So the US uh, has been um, trying to, to, to develop a post INF treaty, ground-based uh, intermediate range missiles and where to put and in what context. And, uh, so it is a, before the Ukraine war, many people in Europe, just assumed that post-INF treaty missile deployment is an issue for Asians, not for Europeans. But uh, I don't know how this war in Ukraine is, is, is going to end, but uh, the possibly that uh, in Europe as well, uh, you might have to think about uh, deploying uh, ground-based inter inter uh, intermediate range missiles. And in such a situation, in the, then the, the, the Japanese and the Europeans or the other US allies and partners in the Asia Pacific region and uh, NATO countries in Europe, I might end up uh, facing a similar uh, set of challenges and uh, similar set of uh, agendas. Excellent. Let, let me perhaps follow up on, on this uh, China-Russia dynamic. Ask one final question from my side before turning over Back to, back to Pierre, because you, you've been talking about how China is looking at what Russia is doing in Ukraine and presumably learning some lessons. But in my view, one of the big stories here relates to um, China's tacit support of, of Russia and the possible costs that may have for China, not, not least considering how things seem to be evolving in Ukraine. So I guess the, the, the question would be, how, how do you think the war in Ukraine will impinge on the Sino-Russian relationship going forward? And how is this perceived from, 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 from Japan? One of the, the changes we have already found in the, the Sino-Russian relations is that uh, the, we, we already have seen a huge shift in balance of power between the two. Even before the war in Ukraine, it was, quite clear that uh, China, China is much bigger than Russia in various areas. But uh, when it comes to military, the, Russia was still a sort of a big brother and uh, China was a sort of a junior partner. But now that perception is changing and particularly seen from Beijing, the Russia's weakness 
Russian military's weakness and problems. That was shocking on one hand, but it's a, it's a great news for, for, for Chinese because now they can be quite confident that even in the field of military things, China is, or at least is now becoming a big brother. Yes, yeah, so, so this change, objective change and also the perception change, both are really significant, but at the same time, the China still needs Russia because they, for China, the relationship between, uh, re relationship with the US is the most important thing. So the, in order to do competition, continue strategic competition with the United States, China needs Russia. So, so that, that is why, yes, the shifting balance of power in the China-Russian relationship in favor of China, that is good news for China. But at the same time, it cannot be seen as a, in China's interest to see a total collapse of Russia. Because uh, after that, uh, China will lose everything in terms of thinking about uh, doing a strategic competition with the United States. So, the, so, so this is a sort of a delicate balance uh, between uh, delicate balance and balancing act for, for, for China. But uh, I, I don't think Beijing has a clear answer and a clear option how, how to navigate uh, this uh, uh, quite difficult uh, situation because they, they don't want to provoke the Americans too much by, for example, sending military equipment to Russia. So that's what, as far as we understand, uh, they, they are sort of a, uh, the, the Chinese are still, a, a, a Chinese still hesitate to do that, uh, perhaps uh, for fear of uh, provoking Americans too much. So the, if that's really the case, that uh, the, we can say that uh, Americans have been able to deter China, preventing uh, China, China from sending uh, military equipment to, to, to Russia. So that may be a good news. But uh, the, the, the China and Russia are just neighbors. So, so, so China can do uh, various things uh, without getting known by, by, by Americans or Europeans or Japanese. And so, so we don't know what exactly China is doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So, so that's what uh, we, are, we, we need to, to, to monitor closely in the coming months. Thank you so much, Professor Tsuruoka. Let me ask the, the final question, which is about uh, quite a recurrent uh, debate about the need for so-called Asian NATO uh, in the Indo-Pacific. What is your view on, on that? And to what extent NATO could serve as a model or not uh, in, in the region? To be quite frank, I'm somewhat skeptical about such an idea because the Japan and South Korea have kept bilateral, respective bilateral alliances with the US and respective alliances serve both countries, the respective countries' interests quite well. For Australia as well, the, they have a, a great alliance with the United States. And uh, somehow those countries, those US allies in Asia and in the Asia-Pacific region are satisfied sort of with the current uh, uh, status and current state of, of, of the alliances. So the, when we think of multilateral framework or multilateral alliance in the region, it's not quite clear what sort of a added value we could get from such a framework. I think more pragmatic way forward is to link between those existing US alliances. 
So they like uh, how we could uh, ensure more synergies between the US-Japan Alliance and the US-Australia Alliance, or what sort of cooperation we could think of between the US-Japan Alliance and the US-South Korea Alliance. And uh, so this more sort of a, a linking various uh, a alliance alliances and, and partnerships. And, and that's exactly what uh, we have been doing. So like Quad, uh, it is about uh, the sort of a plus alpha sort of based on US-Japan Alliance and uh, US-Australia Alliance, and also the growing strategic relationship between Japan and Australia. So these bilateral uh, relationships form a sort of a core for new minilateral frameworks or even multilateral frameworks. So the, and, and also now the, we could think of uh, the Quad Plus, so Quad Plus France or Quad Plus uh, uh, UK or Quad Plus even NATO or Quad Plus EU, whatever. And uh, these flexible and formats are possible. And, and also the, the, these are the things that uh, we, we could think more about because the being flexible and keeping flexible, I think is a suitable for the region and for the requirements and the expectations in the region. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Tsuruoka. Uh, on behalf of, of Luis and myself, uh, let me thank you again for, for your time, for joining us uh, for this episode. This has been really an enlightening uh, conversation for us. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see how the NATO uh, engagement with the Indo-Pacific partners will evolve over the time, notably in the context of the Madrid summits. So this is clearly an issue to watch. Uh, so thanks again, uh, Professor uh, Michito Tsuruoka for, for your time. Thank you very much. So that was another episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Thank you very much to Professor Tsuruoka for joining us and to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you also to the team at CSIS and, and especially to my colleague, uh, Colin Wall, our lead researchers and coordinator on, on the project and to our editor, Ilana Nevins. If you like what you heard, please check out our page on the CSIS website, subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice and leave us a rating and review. See you next time.